I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. Today we're going to do a piece from Ivan Sanderson's 1961 book, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life. Uh, there's lots of great information in there. If anyone is so disposed, I would encourage people to go get a copy of this. Uh, it is dated material, much of it, but much of it is very fascinating anyway. Uh, there was a republishing of it, I think about 20 years ago, so I don't know if that person changed anything or not. But it's uh, if you can get a copy of the original and it's well worth the read. Tom, have you got anything to uh, add to this? Absolutely. Will, I look forward to this. This is the kind of material that I find very interesting and exciting, the historical stuff. Also, I want to say that if you like the show, then please give it a like and subscribe. And if you want to support us, you can do so. There's a link in the description for Patreon. All right. Folks, stand by, and the recording will start shortly. Welcome. This reading is being brought to you by William Jevning. It is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. On our last broadcast, I believe I read to you from The Abominable Snowman by Ivan T. Sanderson, and I read to you from the dedication and the foreword. Today, I will begin reading to you from Chapter 1 about The Abominable Snowman, by Ivan T. Sanderson, Legend Come to Life, about subhumans on five continents from the early Ice Age until today. Chapter 1. A Certain Unpleasantness Upon the detection of an unpleasant odor, most people move off, while everybody wishes that it would go away. Nobody wants it around, yet it is seldom that anybody tries to determine its origin. In 1887, a major in the medical corps of the British Indian Army, Lawrence Austin Waddell, LLD, CB, CIE, FLS, FAI, in other words, Doctor of Laws, Commander of the Ship Bath, Commander of the Indian Empire, Fellow of the Linnaean Society, Fellow of the Anthropological Institute, was meandering about in the eastern Himalayas doing what that rather remarkable breed of men were wont to do, that is, a bit of shooting, some subdued exploring, and a certain amount of politicking. Like many others of his ilk, he wrote a somewhat uninspired and uninspiring book about it, uninspiringly named Among the Himalayas. The major was a normal sort of chappy and a sportsman, but his hunting was not of the feverish 91-gun-in-closet variety of today. Quite the contrary. He would take a few birds of the types that he considered to be legitimate game for his pot, or to keep his eye in for grouse shoots on his next home leave in Scotland. And he banged away at Tygar, T-Y-G-A-R-R, whenever the local natives could rustle one up but he was not scrambling about the Himalayas primarily for what we nowadays call sport. He was just puttering, that lost 19th century British art, because he had some time off, and official sanction to make use of it as he would. Despite the limited intelligence attributed to 19th century British Indian Army colonels, they were really a most remarkable breed, almost a mutation, for, from some hidden depths of their public school educations and the remoter recesses of their ancient family traditions, they dredged up a wealth of wisdom, and they often developed an extraordinarily keen interest in the world about them wherever they happened to land. Most of them were sort of mild philosophers, 
Many turned out to be brilliant linguists and great scholars, and they were often both leaders of men and students of animal life. They have been grossly maligned by almost everybody, laughed at as super blimps, and neglected as historians. But if you will just read their maunderings carefully, you will garner therefrom a trove of both literary and factual gems. Take this Major Waddell, for instance. While pounding over one of the unpleasanter bits of Sikkim in vile weather, he came upon a set of tracks made by some creature walking on two legs and bare feet, he says, went on and on over the freezing snow, not only taking the line of least resistance at every turn, but marking out a course in conformity with the easiest gradients that brought whoops of admiration even from the Major's mountain-born porters. He remarks almost casually upon this remarkable achievement, and wonders vaguely not what manner of man, but what sort of creature could have made them, and why it should have decided to cross this awful pass in the first place. The Major did not realize, when he penned his thought, just what he was starting, though starting is perhaps not the exact word to describe his remarks, for what he recorded was already ancient history when Columbus sailed for the West Indies. It just so happens that, as far as popular recognition is concerned, his was one of the earliest mentions to appear in print in the English language. In what may be called modern times, of what has latterly become known as the abominable snowman. At that time, nobody in what we now call the Western world paid the slightest attention to this extraordinary report, at least as far as we know. It just went into the record as a statement, for one could hardly, in that day and age, call any pronouncement on the part of anybody with such notable honors a lie, or even a traveler's tale. It was therefore assumed that some religious chap must have preceded the gallant major over that particular route, and somehow managed not to die of frostbite, sun-blindness, or starvation. And it was remarked that he had done a dashed good job of negotiating the pass. There the matter rested. Major Waddell's book was one of the many written about the end of the last century, when the Western world was complacently sure that it knew more or less everything about all countries, with the possible exceptions of Tibet and the holy city of Mecca, which it was then considered were rather unsporting in that they did not welcome civilized Englishmen. All sorts of sporting gentry went wandering about the fringes of the empire with rod and gun, and later wrote about their experiences. Their effusions were read by both the previous and the upcoming generations of colonial pioneers, but by few others. What they said was not taken too seriously by the general non-empire-building public, However, many of these gentry also submitted official reports on certain less publicized aspects of their activities to their superiors, and these were taken very seriously. Unfortunately, the great body of such reports are not published, and many of them are either lost in some archive or truly lost forever. There are others that are still top secret and unavailable, so that their very existence is often conjectural, Yet every now and then one stumbles upon such a report that is extremely tantalizing. Tracking down the original is a frightful chore and one of the most time-consuming and frustrating experiences. One is balked at every turn, but not, I would stress, by any deliberate or organized defense on the part of authority. Official archives are preserved for the benefit of all and are open to inspection by all and even the topmost secrets are in time released as mere historical dejecta. The trouble is, simply, that the original reporters, and more so those reported too, did not lay any store by or place any specific value on esoterica, or anything other than the primary matter at hand, which was often of a diplomatic or political nature, so that the items that interest us most were never indexed or catalogued. 
you just have to plow through mountains of material quite extraneous to your particular quarry and hope to stumble upon casual asides that are pertinent to it. But one does occasionally so stumble. Now, I should state, without further ado, and quite frankly, that I am prejudiced in favor of official as opposed to any other form of reports, and for the following reasons. In this country we do not, let's face it, have much respect for the law, or its potential, unless we have recourse to it, or it requires our submission. Until we have been on a witness stand, almost all of us believe that perjury, which is simply a legal term for lying in the law's presence, should be the easiest thing in the world, but even those of us who say that laws are made only to be broken soon found that they are not. Few think twice about telling a fish story in the corner bar, but there are very few, even congenital idiots, who won't think before telling it in a court of law. When, therefore, somebody voluntarily makes an official statement, when there is no profit motive involved, I have always felt it reasonable to assume that it is quite likely true. The British happen to have a particular respect for their law and British officialdom, despite what has been said about its colonial policies, has always been remarkably altruistic. British consuls and other officials just did not report a lot of rubbish to their service headquarters. Even paper was scarce in minor British outposts, and the field officers did not clutter up essential reports with bizarre trivia unless they considered them to be of a real import. We approach, therefore, the following official report with a certain quota of awe. It appears that in 1902, British Indian officialdom was concerned with the stringing of the first telegraph line from Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, to Kalampong, Darjeeling, in Bengal province of India, just south of the Sikkim border. The job entailed, first, going into Tibet, and then stringing the cable out. When the crew reached a pass named Chumbathang, near a place called Jalabla, in the Tibetan Sikkim border, an incident occurred that prompted an official report. A dozen workers failed to return to camp one evening, and a military posse was sent next day to search for them at the scene of their operations. No trace of the missing men was found. But the soldiers, during their wide search for them, found a remarkable creature asleep under a rock ledge, or so the report goes. The soldiers were Indians, not Gurkhas or mountain folk, and this is of significance because... Had they been, they would doubtless have acted differently. The Indians had no qualms about shooting this creature to death immediately. It proved to be human rather than animal in form, though covered with thick, hairy fur. Up to this point, the report is official. Then it becomes unofficial, but for one minor aside to the effect that a full report, together with the beast, was shipped to the senior British political officer, then resident in Kim, who is correctly named as one Sir Charles Bell. The unofficial sequence I take from an extraordinary book only recently published by Mr. John Keel entitled Jadu. This is the more startling in that it even mentions an incident apparently lost and certainly forgotten over half a century before, yet states that the information therein given was obtained first-hand. The author states that he met in 1957 in Darjeeling a retired Indian soldier named Bambahadur Chetri, who claimed that he was among the party that killed this creature and that he personally examined it. He is also alleged to have said that it was about ten feet tall, covered with hair but for a naked face, and that it had long yellow fangs. Further, Mr. Keel says that Bambahadur Chetri told him that the carcass had been packed in ice and shipped to this same Sir Charles Bell, but that he did not hear anything further from it. Nor, apparently, did Mr. Keel, and nor have I though I have spent a lot more time and energy than the item might seem to warrant in a fruitless endeavor to trace further reports, official or otherwise. 
This is the more aggravating since it is the earliest report that I have found on the actual, or even the alleged, capture of any form of what we shall call henceforth an ABSM, i.e. the abominable snowmen, by what we must also, for lack of any established overall name, call the Western world in the Oriental region. Nonetheless, it is by no means the only such report, nor actually the earliest on record, for, as we shall presently see, it was preceded in two, if not three, other continents by just as definite statements, and in some cases, official ones at that. And this brings up another point that I should endeavor to clear up forthwith. I should have preferred to start this story where all stories should begin, which is to say, at the beginning. However, despite a chronology that I have compiled over the years, such a procedure would be open to at least two serious defects. First, it is almost daily, and now with increasing tempo, being added to almost all along the line, which its origins are regressing even farther into the recorded past. Second, it would be extraordinarily dry and over-formal in the eyes of any but extreme specialists. I have felt, therefore, that the history of this whole ABSM business will be much better understood if it is unfolded upon the chronology of its discovery and progress. A sort of history of a history, that is, further, herein recorded deliberately from what we called above the Western point of view, in that it is a chronological record of how the matter was brought to the attention of the Western world. In this, it will soon be seen that a greater part of the discoveries made have come to light in reverse. For instance, it has only been within most recent years that the earliest accounts have come to light, and the further research workers probe into the whole matter, the farther back the origins of the whole ABSM affair recede, while the wider does their distribution become both in fact and in report. Thus, in treating of the history of this matter, we must bear in mind that what appear to us to be discoveries are more nearly revelations, because the majority of the world, which is, of course, non-Western, has to some degree or another known all about this business for centuries, while we have remained completely oblivious of and to it. For these reasons, I divide our chronology into five stages and call these as follows. 1. The ancient period, prior to the 15th century expansion of Europe. 2. The Dark Ages, from 1500 to 1880. 3. That of the Explorers, from about 1880 to 1920. That of the Mountaineers, 1920 to 1950. And 5 that of the searchers, from 1950 to the present day. All of this, however, applies primarily and most essentially to the Himalayan area of the Oriental region where this business was primarily unfolded for us. The same periods, of course, exist in time elsewhere, such as North America, but they cannot be founded on the same criteria or named after the same classes of entrepreneurs. Behind this chronology, and everywhere, lies an immense period of what I call native knowledge. This trails off in the dim mists of the extreme past, and into folklore and myth, an area which is only just now being taken into account as serious history, rather than mere make-believe. Thus, in other parts of the world, our story has often jumped straight out of the native period into that of scientific study. While ABSMs were not only reported, but also reported upon, and even officially in other parts of the world, vide Canada, long before the travels of Major Waddell, and while specimens, as it now turns out, are alleged to have been captured or killed long before that, we of the West recognize that some of these happenings, or alleged happenings, only very recently happened. Also, it now transpires detailed and more properly critical information on the subject was even being published in eastern Eurasia centuries ago, 
for instance, in Tibet, China, Mongolia, and Manchuria, and some reflections of this had filtered through to Europe as early as Renaissance times, as it exemplified in certain curious statements in the works of Marco Polo. Millions of people were talking all this as a matter of course, but the whole thing being completely foreign to European conditions, or even thought, it made no impression upon what we now call the Western world until our fourth period, namely, of the mountaineers. Just how foreign it was prior to that period is clearly demonstrated by the reception, or lack of it, given to a report published in a scientific journal, Proceedings of the Zoological Society of London, in the year 1915, and the brief comments upon it made at the time. The report was read before the Society by a very well-known botanist and scientific explorer named Henry J. Elvis, and consisted of portions of a letter received by that gentleman from a forestry officer by the name of J. R. O. Gent, who was stationed in Darjeeling. This read as follows. I have discovered the existence of another animal, but cannot make out what it is. A big monkey, or ape, perhaps, if there were any apes in India. It is a beast of very high elevations, and only goes down to Falut in the cold weather. It is covered with longish hair, face also hairy, the ordinary yellowish-brown color of the Bengal monkey, stands about four feet high, and goes about on the ground chiefly, though I think it can also climb. The peculiar feature is that its tracks are about eighteen inches or two feet long, and toes point in the opposite direction to that in which the animal is moving. The breadth of the track is about six inches. I take it he walks on his knees and shins instead of on the sole of his foot. He is known as the Jungli Admi, or Sogpa. One was worrying a lot of coolies working in the forest below Falut in December. They were very frightened and would not go into work. I set off as soon as I could to try a bag one of the beast. But before I arrived, the forester had been letting off a gun and frightened it away, so I saw nothing. An old Chokidar of Falut told me, that he had frequently seen them in the snow there, and confirmed the description of the tracks. It is a thing that practically no Englishman has ever heard of, but all the natives of the higher villages know about it. All I can say is that it is not the Nepal languor, but I've impressed upon people up there that I want information the next time one is about. This report, which would today probably cause quite a stir in certain circles, though for various and quite opposed reasons, seems hardly even to have been commented upon. It would probably have been dismissed altogether, and most likely not published in the proceedings, had it not been read by such a person as Elwes. As it was, the general impression left was that perhaps a new species of monkey had been found, and some local folklore embellished. But, unexpectedly, Henry Elwes then saw fit to make a statement of his own to the effect that in 1906 he had himself seen the same, or a similar creature, in another part of the Himalayas. Most aggravatingly, he either did not give further details, or they were not recorded at the time, and after he died his notes were lost while no mention of the incident was to be found in any of his published writings. Zoologists were apparently quite impressed at the time because of the standing of Elwes, but the matter never got further than the closed confines of professional zoology. It was, moreover, not until 1920 that the English-speaking public, outside of the limited audience earlier served by the writings of the travelers of the Orient, was in any way made aware of this whole business. And, as is so often the case, it was even then more by accident than by design. This part of our story is most intriguing as well as being a sort of turning point in Western thinking, and not only upon this, but upon many other matters. But before telling you the details of this little comedy, 
I just want to diverge a moment to impress upon you once again the fact that when they took place, while a revelation was more particularly so to the Anglo-Saxon world. A decade before, 1907, a certain then young zoologist named Vladimir A. Koklov started an extended survey of similar matters throughout central Eurasia and submitted a long report on it to the Imperial Academy of Sciences in Russia. Netherlands authorities had been pestered with annoying, to officialdom, reports of a like nature emanating from Sumatra. The French had undergone the same in Indochina, and the Brazilians in their country, while even in British Columbia both the courts and the crown itself had long been bothered by citizens seeking to make depositions on closely related matters, Thus, in retrospect, the happenings of 1920 lose a great deal of the import, if not their impact. In that year, an incident occurred that was impressive enough, but which might have been either wholly or temporarily buried, had it not been for a concatenation of almost piffling mistakes. In fact, without these mistakes, it is almost certain that the whole matter would have remained in obscurity, and might even now be considered in an entirely different light, or in the status of such other mysteries as that of sea monsters. This was a telegram sent by Lieutenant Colonel, now Sir, C. K. Howard Barry, who was on a reconnaissance expedition to Mount St. Everest region. The expedition was approaching the northern face of Everest, that is to say from the Tibetan side, and when at about 17,000 feet up on the Lapgala Pass, saw, and watched, through binoculars, a number of dark forms moving about on a snowfield far above. It took them some time and considerable effort to reach the snowfield where these creatures had been, but when they did, so they found large numbers of huge footprints, which Colonel Howard Berry later stated were about three times those of normal humans, but which he nonetheless also said he thought had been made by a very large stray gray wolf. The extraordinarily illogical phrasing of this statement will be discussed later on, but it should be noted here that a large party of people had seen several creatures moving about, not just a wolf, and that it is hard to see how the colonel could determine its color from its tracks. However, despite these expressions, the Sherpa porters on the expedition disagreed with them most firmly and stated that the tracks were made by a creature of human form to which they gave the name Mito Kangmi. Colonel Howard Berry appears to have been intrigued by this scrap of what he seems to have regarded as local folklore, but like all who have had contact with them, he had such respect for the Sherpas that he included the incident in a report that he sent to Kathmandu, capital of Nepal, to be telegraphed on to his representatives in India. And this is where the strange mistakes began. It appears that Colonel Howard Berry, in noting the name given by the Sherpas either mistransliterated or miswroted, he also failed to realize that he was dealing with one of several kinds of creatures known to the Sherpas, and that they, on this account, apparently both in an endeavor to emphasize this and, for the sake of clarity, used as a generic term for all of them, the name Kangmi, which is a word foreign to their language. This is a Tibetan colloquialism in some areas, and is itself partly foreign in origin even there, in that Kang is apparently of Chinese origin, while Mi is a form of Nepalese meh. The combination thus meant snow creature. His meto would better have been written meh-te, the name of which we shall hear much, and which turns out to mean the meh, or man-sized te, or wild creature. However, the Indian telegraph then got in the act, and either he dispatched this word as, or it was transcribed in India as, Mech. 
The recipients in India were unfamiliar with any of the languages or the dialects of the area, but they were impressed by the fact that Howard Berry had thought whatever it might be important enough to cable the report. So they appealed to a sort of fount of universal wisdom for help. This was a remarkable gentleman named Mr. Henry Newman, who has for years written a most fascinating column in the Calcutta Statesman on almost every conceivable subject, and who has the most incredible fund of information at his fingertips. This gentleman, however, did not really know the local languages or dialects of the eastern Tibet or Nepal either, but this did not deter him from giving an immediate translation of this Mech Kankmi, which he stated categorically was Tibetan for an abominable snowman. The result was like the explosion of an atom bomb. Nobody, and notably the press, could possibly pass up any such delicious term. They seized upon it with the utmost avidity, and bestowed upon it enormous mileage, but almost without anything concrete to report. The British press gulped this up, and the public was delighted. Then there came a lull in the storm. During this time, it now transpires, a number of eager persons started a fairly systematic search for previous reports on these abominable creatures, and they came up with sufficient to convince their editors that the story was not just a flash-in-pan, but a full-fledged mystery that had actually been going on for years. Thus, the birth of the abominable snowmen, per se, may be precisely dated as of 1920. And once it was launched, it gathered momentum, as we shall see later when we come to examine the actual reports from the eastern Himalaya region, almost everybody who went there, and notably the mountaineers, reported either seeing snowmen, their tracks, or hearing them, finding cairns and other objects moved by them, or relating information second-hand that they had gleaned from the native population. The business reached a crescendo in 1939, with the publication of several quite long accounts in books by well-known and much-respected explorers such as Ronald Kulbach. Then came World War II, and the matter faded into limbo. But it did not by any means stop. No sooner was the war over than the onslaught on Mount Everest was resumed, and along with this came a new approach to the ABSM affair. Everybody appears to have felt it incumbent to at least mention the matter, even if he could not contribute anything new or material to the story. Yet there were very few who did not have something concrete to offer, and indeed I am unable to name one who didn't. What is more, prior to World War II, this was an almost exclusively British affair, though there was a book on the first American Karakaram expedition, entitled Five Miles High, that was most pertinent. It has now become international as a result not only of expeditions going to the area from many nations and of multinational composition, but also because of reports that came to light, but which were originally made during the war. Also, for the first time, reports by what may be called native foreigners began to appear. The whole subject of natives is a sorry one, and it is rather muddling to the Americans because, to them, it has several meanings, none of which is exactly synonymous with the term as developed and understood among the British. It was the Declaration of Independence by a number of Asiatic nations that brought confusion, in that while these peoples were manifestly native to their own countries, they suddenly became no longer natives in the precise British sense, so that what they said had to be accepted and assessed in an entirely new light. Whereas, while anything stated by such people prior to the war could be passed off as a mere native tale, or a story by some benighted native, it had now to be treated with respect as a statement by a responsible citizen. What is more, an Indian traveling through Nepal or Tibet also became just as much a foreigner as any Britisher. 
and in some cases actually more so, because there were places where more Britishers had been living longer than the Indians. This proved extremely awkward to the British at first, and it took about a decade, even for their phlegmatic genius, for compromise, along with a fairly genuine common decency and belief in good manners, to gain the upper hand. Despite the international scramble, it was again the British who attracted world attention to the matter of ABSMs, and it was still their mountaineers who did this. The most notable was Mr. Eric Shipton, who on still another reconnaissance of the Everest block came upon a long set of tracks, not by any means for the first time in his life, and after following them for some distance, noting they were definitely bipedal, but negotiated almost impossible obstacles that would be hard for even an experienced mountaineer to do, took a series of clear photographs of them. While they were published in the much-respected Illustrated London News, not a publication given to elaboration, irresponsible reportage, or the mounting of international jokes, this time everybody had to take the matter seriously, and they did, but in a variety of ways. The public, as is its pragmatic want, took to it at its face value. The press literally howled. The explorers cheered a bit, but the scientists flew into a positive tantrum, an altogether undignified performance, the effects of which have not yet worn off and will not do so for many years. This was in 1951, and it marked the next turning point in the history of ABS Emery. Up till then, the matter had been primarily a Western, and notably a British prerequisite, it had also been a child of the popular press, with a sort of minor cold war going on between the mountaineers and the zoologists. Now, however, a new agency entered the picture, a polyglot assortment of people of various bents that can only be termed the searchers. Since the turn of the century, there had continued to be outright explorers as well as putterers and sportsmen in the field, and not a few of those continued to stumble upon ABSMs, or tracks, and other evidence of their passing. None of these, however, had any prior interest in the matter, and, like the mountaineers, had been in the Himalayas primarily for other purposes. On the other hand, the whole affair was, until Eric Shipton published his photographs, really nothing more than a news gimmick, though the press had had to tread warily with the reporters, made by prominent persons, and especially the mountaineers engaged in the attack on Everest, which had official backing. The scientific world had not been quite so circumspect. At the outside, it denounced the whole thing as, first, a fraud, and then a case of mistaken identity, and it stuck to this story. And it still, in large part, sticks to it today even to the extent of deliberately ridiculing such men as Shipton and Kalbach. But after their completely unsuccessful attempt to set Shipton's 1951 findings at naught, which backfired with considerable public impact, a sort of revolution began within the ranks of science. Some top-notch scientists, not just technicians and self-appointed experts who happened to be employed by scientific organizations, started to investigate the whole matter upon truly scientific principles. What is more, these scientists were primarily anthropologists, as opposed to zoologists, and this was of the utmost significance, for the latter had permanently closed the door on the whole question when they could not prove that it was a hoax, stating flatly that all ABSM tracks were made either by bears or monkeys. Also, there were anthropological expeditions actually going into the field, and these too began to report discoveries similar to those of the mountaineers. Notable among the field workers were Dr. Weiss Dunant of a Swiss expedition, Professor von Futter Heimendorf of the School of Oriental and African Studies, and in particular Professor René von Nebeski Wojkowicz. Among those not engaged in fieldwork, 
were Dr. C. W. Osman Hill of the Zoological Society of London in England, Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, Belgian zoologist in Paris, and latterly a whole group of Russian scientists led by Professor B. F. Porzhnyev. It was the press, however, that was in the end first in the field with an expedition aimed primarily at the ABSMs. This was organized by the Daily Mail of London and went to the Himalayas in 1954. It was a curious outfit, and it was not very successful, but it initiated a new, and to date the last, phase in the history of this mystery. It was led by a reporter, Ralph Izzard, and had among its members a professional zoologist, Dr. Biswas of Calcutta, and also a man named W. M. Gerald Russell, whose experience was of great significance, though nobody seems to have realized it at the time. However, it was once again directed by mountaineers. The significance of this escaped everybody then, and to a very great extent still does. The universal impression had been gained over the years that the abominable, as then supposed, snowman, whatever it might be, was a denizen of the snowfields, and therefore inhabited the uppermost slopes of the Himalayas. As a result, its pursuit was looked upon primarily as a mountaineering job and was therefore given to the professionals and the experts in that field of sport. The idea of including a scientist, and especially a zoologist, had never occurred to anybody previously. The idea of including a man with the particular skills and experience, as well as training, of Gerald Russell was not even yet, it seems, dawned upon anybody. Russell alone, among the whole army of investigators, is really the only man qualified to tackle the problem. For he is a professional collector, which is something absolutely different from either hunters or sportsmen on the one hand, or research scientists on the other. Then again, no ABSM is a denizen of any snowfield, naturally, and as should be obvious to any sane person on a moment's consideration, for in such places there is nothing to eat. All turn out to inhabit dense mountain forests. Thus, just about the last person suited to search for them are mountaineers, who have a positive passion for climbing mountains above all else, while sportsmen and hunters are little better for other and even more obvious reasons. This is a somewhat sensitive question, but one of first importance. The techniques developed over the ages for hunting are basically aggressive. Be they noisy, as in beating, or silent, as in stalking. Further, the dog, which is not only a domestic but actually an artificial animal, has been extensively used in hunting. These methods obtain the quickest results in the largest amounts of what is specifically desired. Collecting, on the other hand, should best be almost entirely passive. Silence is one of its features in certain of its aspects, but almost as much as noise is permissible as in hunting in certain circumstances. To obtain animals not normally hunted, the less ground covered the better, but the longer the collector must sit and wait for the animals to become used to his presence. The noises he makes, and the effluva he gives off in the normal course of living, as many artificial things as possible must be eliminated, and most notably dogs, metal, especially metal cleaned with mineral oils, and such like that are not indigenous to the wild, Given time, any wild creature, however timid, will come to investigate the collector, whereas it will fly before the hunter long before it is detected. Even zoologists, unless they have had extensive collecting experience in the field, are little bitter, for they, poor souls, are hustled about by everybody else, into and out of the least likely areas for proper investigation, and are in any case supplied in advance with a sort of book of rules that goes far to negotiating the search for anything that is not already known. The Daily Mail expedition did, nonetheless, include among its ranks, and deliberately, 
a very experienced zoologist with field experience in the form of Dr. Biswas, and, quite fortuitously, in the person of Gerald Russell, the first and only man on any ABSM expedition trained to tackle such a collecting problem. It also accomplished something else, in that it publicized the whole matter and served notice on everybody that the press was no longer overawed by what they had termed scientific opinion, but from then on took the affair for granted as having graduated from the category of the silly season filler. In fact, it pointed the way to some serious endeavor designed to try to solve the mystery. This challenge was taken up by quite a new type of operator. The Daily Mail expedition returned in 1955, and in that same year an Argentine mountaineering expedition and another British party of Royal Air Force Alpinists reported having encountered tracks and other evidence of ABSMs. The following year, the young man, John Keel, already mentioned, made his trip through the country and, as stated in his book published in 1958, tracked and sighted an ABSM. At the same time, the Russians were conducting investigations and getting ready to make a concerted attack upon the problem. There were also quite a number of others in the field, while the few serious students at home began to bring to light all manner of related items from the past. The busiest of these scientific sleuths, and the most open-minded and best informed, was the zoologist Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, who had for long specialized in the collection and examination of evidence for the existence of any creatures as yet unknown to and unidentified by zoologists. It was he, moreover, who first brought the findings of the Hollanders in East Indies, the French, and Indochina, and to a very considerable extent that of the South American explorers, to light. The American expedition of these findings by Huvelmans, on the track of unknown animals, was published by Hill and Wang of New York in 1958. However, the most significant personality to enter the field was the prominent Texan, Mr. Thomas B. Slick. Tom Slick, as he is known to everybody and all over the world, is a most remarkable man. To Americans, he is probably best known because of the airline that carries his name, which is itself a natural advertisement with amusing connotations in the English language. Then, in the world of commerce, as he is widely known for his position in the mysterious world of oil and the very down-to-earth world of beef, but his international reputation is based on his extraordinary efforts in the cause of world peace. Tom Slick has done many other things, and is not only a patron of, but a driving force in many purely scientific endeavors. He established the second-largest privately-owned research unit in the world in the form of the Southwest Research Institute near his hometown of San Antonio and adjacent to his other large organization for educational promotion. I am often asked to describe this man, and my response is invariably the same, namely to say simply that, for all his activities and the vastness of his outlook and effort, he is less like the popular conception of a Texan than anybody I have ever met. Tom Slick does things, and very fortunately he became intrigued with the business of ABSMs. Despite ridicule, especially among many of those closest to him, he set to work upon it with the determination that he, almost alone in the Western world it seems, was capable of and willing to apply. And, being a bulldog, he has kept quietly at it ever since. I speak of Tom Slick at length because it is he, and he almost alone, who has by his quiet persuasion heaved this whole irksome business out of a sort of tin-ring international circus into the realm of a serious scientific endeavor, while he has also stimulated others in England, France, Italy, India, and elsewhere who are working on the problem, by means of personal contacts, and by the exercise of sympathetic encouragement. Finally, he did one more thing. This was to break out of the confined limits of the Himalayan area and the Oriental region, 
and direct attention at proper efforts to other parts of the world, such as California, which are proving to be every bit as important in regards to ABSMs, if not much more significant than even the uplands of Eurasia. He began his own personal investigations by a trip to the Himalayan region in 1957. In 1957, Tom Slick, together with A.C. Johnson, mounted the first full-fledged expedition to the Himalayas for the specific and sole purpose of investigating ABSMs. This saw the extremely fortuitous bringing together of Gerald Russell and the brothers Peter and Brian Byrne, and was the happiest event that had happened until then, and still has been until the time of this writing, happened to A.B.S. Emery. For the first time in history, the leadership was not given to mountaineers or hunters, but to persons with collecting experience who believed that the quarry was real, was multiple in form, and that in all its forms it lived in the forests as opposed to the upper snowfields. As a result, this expedition came closer to obtaining concrete results than any other before or since, and produced more straight evidence of the existence of such creatures than all other expeditions put together. For details, wait until we get to chapter 12. In the same year, however, the Soviet Academy of Sciences had established a special commission to coordinate the findings for several groups who had been working on the problem in countries within the Soviet sphere. These workers had brought to light the astonishing reports of Koklov made to the Academy in 1914, but which had been shelved. They had before them the current report of Dr. Pronin, a hydrologist of Leningrad University, who alleged he had seen an ABSM in the Pamirs, and that they had a wealth of material from the Mongolian People's Republic and a lot from China, and they had decided to mount proper scientific expeditions to investigate. These were four in number, and were put into the field in 1958, one to the Caucasus, where a creature named the Windman had been rumored for centuries, one to the north face of the Everest block, one to the Mongolian region, and one to the Pamirs, which, for certain odd reasons, they considered to be the breeding ground of the ABSMs. Meantime, they started the publication of their overall findings in the form of booklets, and concurrently with this, a series of studies on fossil men, and particularly the Neanderthals. Also, a wealth of previously unpublished material, some historical and some current, appeared in certain Russian magazines, notably Technika Molodoyoisi. These Soviet activities shed an entirely new light on the whole business, and also put it on such an altogether higher plane that Western scientific circles were obliged to change their attitude toward the matter quite drastically. No longer could they simply avoid the issue by saying that it had been explained or that its protagonists were merely a bunch of amateur enthusiasts pursuing a fantasy. At the same time, a certain nervous irritation was to be detected in their pronouncements, because the press just then began harping on the case of the coelacanth fish discovered off the southeast coast of South Africa. This had at first been called a hoax, but had finally had to be accepted as living proof of the fact that not everything about the life of the planet is known. Obviously, creatures confidently thought to have been decently extinct for tens of millions of years can still be around. Further, it was the Russians who first stressed, though perhaps more by inference, something that those scientists in the West who had taken the matter seriously had been harping on for some time. This was that the whole problem is an anthropological rather than a zoological matter. In other words, all the Sino-Soviet evidence pointed to ABSMs being primitive hominoids, i.e. men, rather than pongids, i.e. apes, or other non-human creatures, thus linking them with known fossil forms such as Gigantopithecus, the Pithecanthropians, and especially the Neanderthalers and, in so doing, they also emphasize another point, 
that the whole now very serious but totally ignored fact that there is not just one creature called the abominable snowman, but a whole raft of creatures distributed almost all over the world of very considerable variety, and of as many as three distinct types in the Tibetan Himalayan area alone. This suggestion was, of course, not merely obnoxious, but positively horrific to the orthodox scientists, who were still vehemently denying even the possibility of the existence of even one such entity. Then the final bombshell landed. At this point in my narrative, I must confess to a considerable embarrassment since I must speak in the first person, and I do this with much diffidence. In 1958, I received a number of reports of an ABSM in California. At first, this sounded quite balmy, even to us. And we are used to the most outrageous things, and got itself filed among what we call Fortiana, which is to say that those damnable and unaccessible items of the categories collected by the late Charles Fort. However, it so happened that I was privileged to spend the year 1959 touring the North American continent gathering material for a book on its geology, structure, vegetational cover, and wildlife. Before leaving, I had a research specialist, Stanley I. Rowe, with whom I had long been associated, prepare for me from his files, from ours and from other sources, the details of any and all oddities and enigmas reported from this continent by states and provinces, these I investigated as a news reporter, and as I went along, and when I came to Northern California, I fell into the most extraordinary state of affairs that I have ever encountered in my life. This was no idle rumor, but a full-fledged mystery, and a straight-down-the-line, hard-boiled news story. This I tell in detail in chapter 6, so suffice it to say here that I found there clear and most convincing evidence of the existence of a form of ABSM of most outstanding qualities. But worse was to follow, for prompted by this astonishing discovery, I went aside in British Columbia to investigate their long-renowned Sasquatch, only to find that it was just as definite, and apparently identical to the Omas, or Bigfeet, of California. Subsequent research has, what is more, brought to light a mass of other reports of similar things from Quebec, the Canadian Northwest Territories, the Yukon, the Idaho Rockies, Washington, and Oregon. This brings us up to the date of writing, except to note that a large Japanese expedition went in 1959-60 to to the Himalayas specifically to search for the ABSMs. While there were other expeditions in that area, in Sumatra and in California, fitted out for the purpose. Finally, later this year, 1960, Sir Edmund Hillary, backed by American sponsors and with Marlon Perkins, director of the Lincoln Park Zoo of Chicago, accompanying him as zoological expert, conducted an expedition to the eastern Himalayas with this pursuit as his second major objective. That is the end of Chapter 1. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned next week for the beginning of Chapter 2. All right, we're back. There was three interesting points I think I'd like to make from this uh, reading. The first one has to do with what Sanderson said, uh, and I think it's on page number two at the bottom, where he talks about um, the different kinds of <clears throat> evidence, excuse me. And he says there remains only two sets of evidence to the existence of the ABSMs, that's the title or the term they used. Uh, one of the reports and the other are tracks. And he says, basically, you could, you know, skeptics could, you know, figure out one reason or another while the other pieces of evidence may not work. But those are two that you really can't get away from. And that's pretty true. We get that with our topic here in North America, too. Um, there was, I'm trying to remember the other points. There was another point where uh, a little bit later he talks about 
uh, some soldiers who actually killed one. And I can't remember well, the date. Well, he talked to this person, I think, of 1951. But the story goes back where, I think it involves some missing people, right, Tom? Yes, it did. Yeah, there's 12 missing people, I believe. So the soldiers from India, they went out, and he talked about the Gurkhas, and it wasn't Gurkhas because he says they would have had a different, um, you know, view on everything. <laughs> right, but, uh, right. The Indian, Indian soldiers had no compulsion about shooting and killing something like this, so they did this, and very similar to the uh, Minnesota Iceman story, and again, these repeating patterns where, you know, one was shot and killed, both the Minnesota Iceman and this creature were put on ice, and then the corpse vanished. Uh, in this case, it was shipped off to some official, and nothing was ever heard of it again. Well, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I find interesting, and this is, I don't think he mentions this in the story. I'm sure he doesn't. But in September of 1958, well, you sent me a copy of a Foreign Service dispatch, and that document is actually, it addresses three points, uh, three regulations regarding, uh, and this is in the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi. And so there's, there's three regulations regarding the Yeti. So there's an official recognition of the creature going all the way back then. And um, so I just, I find that fascinating. But the other the repeating patterns will, hello, and, uh, and footprints. Here's an, here was a third point that I wanted to make, and that is Sanderson mentions very early on, and this is something we take, well, we're not take for granted. Today we sort of say, well, you know, we hear things from uh, Australia and elsewhere, and we think, oh, yeah, wow, these creatures are other places, you know, like it's a surprise. But at the time of this writing, they already recognized that the creature's reports or reports of the creatures were coming in from five different continents. So it was no surprise even in 1961. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, you know, growing up as a kid, Will, I had always thought that this was the abominable snowman was, you know, pretty much limited to to India and the Himalayas and all that sort of thing. Right. And maybe the North Pole based on some of the Christmas cartoons that I would watch. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You speak of that one, you know, the the one Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer yeah. that a lot of us in our age range grew up with. You know, they had the uh, the Bumble Snowman, and he had a taste for pork. Now, where would he get a taste for pork at the North Pole? <laughs> right. I hadn't thought about that. Yes. You know, and, and coincidentally, uh, in, in certain regions where there's a lot of wild pigs, not just wild pigs, but... There are quite a few stories, even from films like uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek, where, you know, two large pigs were carried off by the, by the creature there. So, you know, apparently they do have a taste for pork, and how the uh, creators of that show, that cartoon, came up with that, I'll never know. Right, right. Well, so these creatures, they like their uh, ham and eggs, or at least the ham anyway. <laughs> He, he talks, you know, this book has so much information, and we just don't have the time for this segment to go through a lot of it. There are some references in here that he used, Sanderson, that I've actually ordered, and we'll revisit some of this and dig a little bit deeper another time. But since the recording was the length that it was, it was almost an hour long, uh, and we're trying to keep the midweek show right around an hour, we're not going to do a lengthy uh, discussion on this book. Most of it in this chapter was uh, as reports and things like that from people. So, Tom, any, any thoughts before we close this segment? Well, I just want to say, again, this is what I find personally exciting about the historic aspect of our show and his, well, and the topic, I should say, are, again, the repeating patterns. You, It doesn't matter whether it's Australia, India, you know, the Asian continent, whatever it's it's the same it's really the same creature yeah and, and a lot of people like i said are kind of it's like they're trying to rediscover everything and and these people like sanderson and sanderson was a zoologist he wasn't just a writer he was a zoologist a qualified scientist so uh the guy knew his stuff this information was collected and out there a long time ago you know nearly 
nearly 60 years ago. So, or I guess it would be what 60, 61 years ago now. So the information is out there. It's not new. Uh, and again, check this book out if you haven't. It's well worth reading, and there's just tons and tons of information. And we'll revisit some of this when I get some of these deeper sources of information. So any other thoughts before we wrap this piece up? I just uh, want to say thank you to our audience. And by the way, we encourage questions and comments. So uh, throw the comments in the comment section. But if you have a question for us or if you've had an encounter, shoot us an email, questions at creekdevil.com. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. All right, folks, and stay tuned for Saturday show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.